it can't finish there. Perhaps you've thought that or said it at the end of a book, at the end of a film, at the end of a TV series, there's a cliffhanger. Uh, and it leaves as many questions unanswered as it answers. And Genesis does that a bit. Jacob dies. Joseph dies. The search for a saviour that started in Genesis 3 seems to have run aground. The best hope, Joseph, is in a coffin. Genesis ends with the painful reality of death. And God had said death would be our destiny because of Adam and Eve's sin. And here it is. Everybody dies. Has any progress been made since chapter 3? Doesn't look like it. Death still wins. But yet progress has been made because look at how Jacob and then Joseph approach the end of their days, they do so with hope, with confidence, and with an assurance that death is not the end. They have an anticipation of a life to come. Yes, they don't have all the information that we have, living further on after God has given us the whole of the rest of the Bible and shown us the resurrection of Jesus, but they've got something. They've got a confidence And isn't that how we want to to live and to die? With confidence. But we want to do more than die well. We want to live well. And the sermon this morning was going to be called Living and Dying with Confidence. But we're only going to cover the living bit. We'll cover the dying bit uh, this evening. Because if we want to finish well, we need to, to... If we want to finish well with confidence in God, we need to live with confidence in God. And what does this living well look like? Is it that Joseph is prime minister of Egypt, that he's married to a princess, that he has two fine sons and a nice house and a great job? No. This living well is available to all of God's people, whether we're prime ministers or not whether we're married or not, whether we have a nice house or a nice job or not. Is it that Joseph has ridden out the stormy seas of life and has risen to the top of the heap? No, although that has happened. But that may not happen to all of us. But here's what this living well looks like. It is that he has maintained his trust in God throughout the storms. He's kept trusting. And that trust that he has exercised and built up over the course of his life is going to stand him in good stead as he comes to the end of his days. Now we also learn, looking at Jacob, that it's never too late to start. Because Jacob didn't trust all the days of his life. And yet he finishes well. Because in the latter years of his life, He put his trust in God, and although he had doubts as well along the way, and although he stumbled and fell, he kept trusting in God and redeveloped his trust in God and started to see things from God's perspective and not just looking at life through his own eyes. And his faith flourished again, and he finishes well too. And that's what I want for all of us. I want 
every single person here to live and to die convinced of God's supreme sovereignty. That you can trust him with everything in life and with everything in death. And so this morning we're going to think of living with confidence in God's sovereignty. And this evening we will think of dying with confidence in God's promises. That doesn't mean this evening is going to be a real negative, depressing sermon because it's about living with confidence or dying with confidence in God's promises. God's people used to be known as people who knew how to die well. The Puritans spoke of the the art of dying well. See, we, we have a hope and a confidence that the world doesn't have, but to have that hope and confidence, we don't just magic it up at the end of our days. It comes from a life that's lived with confidence in God's sovereignty. And we see that summed up for us in verse 20 of chapter 50. And that's our text this morning. We're really only going to look at one verse. Living with confidence in God's sovereignty. Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There's a verse to memorize. There's a verse to live by. There's a verse to filter your life through. It comes from the lips of Joseph to his brothers just after Joseph's father's funeral. There's been a huge state funeral. They are now back in Egypt, having traveled to Canaan for the funeral. And things have settled down. The brothers are worried though. Joseph, whom they had treated so despicably, is the second most powerful man in Egypt. And they wonder, what if he holds a grudge against us and pays us back? Has vengeance been festering in Joseph's heart? And so they, they concoct, it would seem. I think they're, we're not told directly that they're making it up, but it seems that they're perhaps back to their old tricks. Uh, and they, they concoct a story or in their fear. Or maybe Jacob did say it. They sent word, verse 16, to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they had committed in treating you so badly. Whether that's true or not, here's Joseph's response. Joseph said to them, verse 19, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And then verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Literally that last phrase is he spoke to their hearts. He put their hearts at ease. And this morning I want God to speak to your hearts, to put your hearts at ease too, as you hear this great statement from Joseph's lips. Joseph's response comes from his trust in God's sovereignty. Joseph had been living for years trying to make sense of all that had happened to him. 
His dreams had turned into a nightmare. His dreams were actually given to him by God, that he would be successful and that his brothers and his mother and father would bow at his feet. And yet those dreams had turned into a nightmare before they came true. Has that ever happened to you? Not that God has perhaps given you a vision of what your future is, but that your plan for your future turned into a nightmare. That your hopes and dreams didn't work out the way you had thought they would. Or perhaps you were walking along in life, obeying God, walking in his pathways, and as Joseph was, and life crashed in around you. And where you're at is not where you thought you would be. How, if God is in charge, could all this hold together? Here in Joseph's statement is a perfectly balanced summary of confident trust. It acknowledges the wrong, the hurt and the pain. It trusts the overruling hand of God. And it sees the purpose of God in it. And those three things give it perfect balance and give hope and help us uh, this morning. So we want to look at them in turn. Three things. First of all, there's sinful actions. Sinful actions are acknowledged. You meant it for harm. Joseph faces his brothers. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Literally, he says, you designed evil against me. You planned evil against me. He acknowledges the awfulness of what they did. He doesn't say, oh, it was nothing, don't worry about it. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. Put yourself in the shoes of a 17-year-old who listens to his brothers discussing whether or not they will kill him. Imagine yourself in the shoes of that 17-year-old being taken by his brothers and thrown into a dry, waterless hole in the ground in a desert. And the fears that you have, will I just be left here? Will I be left to die? Will I die of thirst? Just shrivel up as a wizened corpse? And then he hears them discussing that they will sell him as a slave. Is this worse? This is a a living death. A short, miserable life of hard labor. And behind that moment were countless other moments of resentment from the brothers and hatred and snide comments and scornful looks and sharp words and put-downs and the delegating of dirty tasks and the the sly digs and punches and kicks and trips. Bad enough been in a household of boys. Twelve of them. But whenever you have the the name of being the father's favourite one, you're one of the youngest. You meant evil against me, he says. These weren't the only sinful actions against Joseph. He could have said the same thing to Potiphar's wife. Her lust-filled eyes. Her rejection-fueled lies. The years that he had lost in prison. 
plunged from the heights of, of being a successful manager of Potiphar's household to being a prison orderly. All of this intended for harm, evil designed against him. And then maybe also the actions of the cupbearer who left Joseph in prison and went his own merry way to freedom. His lack of action, maybe didn't intend it deliberately, but his lack of action caused even more harm to Joseph. Sinful actions. Maybe there are parts of your life and you could write that over it. You intended it for harm. Maybe there's an individual or individuals you could you can picture them yet. Hurtful, del- deliberate, painful actions or words. Maybe it was lies. Maybe it was scheming. You designed it for harm. That's what Joseph said to his brothers. Maybe they were vindictive against you. Maybe they were much worse. Or maybe it wasn't so much the intentional actions of others. Maybe it was the unintentional accident or unintentional actions like the cupbearer. Maybe something happened to you that, that harmed you, but it was a complete accident and that has set the course of your life and harm was done. Or maybe it isn't actually the actions intentional or otherwise of others. Maybe it was you, your own actions. Oh, you thought they were for good and you intended it for pleasure at the time, but it has brought nothing but harm into your life. Sinful actions are acknowledged here. We're not required to go into denial or to hide our past or to try and sweep it under the carpet, the, the sinful actions of others. You know, ignoring them only suppresses the hurt. But we need to do more than acknowledge them. Because if we stop here, this is where bitterness and frustration and resentment and hatred and anger get all knotted up in our hearts. And when vengeance does begin to fester, I had a message this week uh, from someone asking me, uh, somebody I know just asked me, how do I deal with someone who has hurt me and who uh, I'm constantly angry at? They're seeing all those sinful actions. They're not sweeping them under the carpet, but it's not helping them, is it? We need something more. I, I was speaking to somebody else recently, and they have had a particularly terrible life. And then they said to me, this year has been the worst year of my life. I thought, wow, that's really saying something. And then they said something utterly amazing. But I firmly believe that our past is our greatest asset in God's hands. Somebody able to acknowledge the sin that's been done to them and how hard their their year has been. But they're not stopping there. And whilst we can see and acknowledge the, the actions that have been done to us, the actions that we've engaged in, or the hurts that have come to us, we need to move on. You intended it for harm, but God. The second thing we see is simultaneous sovereignty. 
simultaneous sovereignty. Sinful actions, but simultaneous sovereignty. But God intended it for good. You see, we have got to put the poison of our past or our present or other people's actions inside the shield of God's sovereignty. It's a bit like taking something radioactive and then we can encase it in lead. Well, here is the safe place to put the sinful actions of others that we're not going to ignore, that we're not going to sweep under the carpet, but there is a safe place for them. Because if we try to ignore them, their toxicity will leak out and poison us. Is there hope? Yes. And it's not just some psychological trick. It is a wonderful statement from God's Word. But God intended it for good. Notice what Joseph doesn't say. He doesn't say God used it for good. That would be impressive. There you would have an image of God like some sort of master painter. And there we are and we're, we're making a mess of the painting. But he is clever enough and wise enough to, to come along and see our mistake and, and use it and turn it into something beautiful. That would be impressive. If a carpenter or a, a, somebody carving wood and we take a huge gouge out of the thing with a chainsaw and he comes along and, and he whips it into to something beautiful. That would be impressive. But no. It's not that God is reacting all the time. What Joseph says is even richer. At the very same moment that his brothers were intending evil, the very same moment they were plotting and scheming harm, God was intending good. They were planning. They were devising harm. And in that moment, before anything had even happened, when the thought was in their very heads, God is planning and devising good. Here is simultaneous sovereignty, a powerful and wonderful truth. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it later on in the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh is plotting harm and he comes pursuing after the Israelites as they're leaving the country and he's hemming them in at the Red Sea and God says I brought you this way so that you could see something wonderful Pharaoh plotting harm God planning good we see it in the book of Job Satan wants to destroy Job and God says go on ahead and try and as Satan's busy plotting against Job God is intending it for good for the encouragement of millions of believers down through the millennia. If we read the book of Job and we see God's ways in there, we see it in the scattering of the church. In the book of Acts, Paul is pursuing the church, hunting down these Christians to put them to death, to put them in prison. And what happens? They all spread out from Jerusalem and go everywhere. What do they do? They tell the good news of Jesus everywhere. God's intending, or Satan's intending it for harm. Saul was intending it for harm. God is intending it for good. You know, in China, just reading this last week, a couple of weeks ago, as the church, as, as the government keeps putting Christians in prison, there are people becoming Christians in prison and being discipled in prison, and going out of prison, and joining churches all over the country. 
you know, the government's intending it for harm. And God's going, try your best. Watch me. And he's using it for good. Intending it for good. And we see it. That this is God's modus operandi, his way of working most clearly in the cross. In Acts 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, This Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The wicked men nailed him to death on the cross. They intended it for harm. But it was all according to God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Here's the ultimate proof of God's supreme sovereignty. He's not running around with a brush and pan, sweeping up as things happen. We see it all over Scripture. We see it actually from the very beginning. Satan comes into the garden intending it for harm. But God has intended it for good all along. One writer says, Even where no man could imagine it, God had all the strings in his hand. Back to that weaving illustration and think of the complexity of something with five different colours of thread and there are the five spools and all the pieces are being woven in. Imagine 50 bobbins with the, the, the 50 different colours and all they're being weaved in. You watch the weaver and the, the scale. How do they remember? How do they know what has to be incorporated? Imagine a hundred. Imagine a thousand different threads and colours paled into insignificance whenever you take into account the 108 billion, 470 million, 615 people who have ever lived. That's approximately. God is weaving all of these threads. Satan is trying to tangle them and mess them up. And God is going, do your best. And he's weaving them all perfectly together. For the good of his people. Simultaneous sovereignty. Or more strictly. Absolute preceding sovereignty. God is over everything. And Joseph had seen it. He had seen it previously in Genesis 45. His brothers realized for the first time. That the man in front of them. They thought was the prime minister of Egypt. Is their brother. And they're in terror. And he says to them. Don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you, he says it again. Then in verse 8 of 45, he says, It was not you who sent me here. Yes, it was. It was. But he says, no, it was God. At the same moment, the same time, God was working. You know, another writer, a man called Chad Bird, whose book I've been enjoying over the last number of weeks, uh, wrote this from age 17 to 30. Joseph learned that theology is not only taught in books, but in waterless pits, lustful bedrooms, dark dungeons, by backstabbing brothers and promise-breaking friends. 
and people and places the devil likes to use. Joseph was taken into Satan's classroom. But God actually was the teacher. Satan meant it for harm. His brothers meant it for harm. But God intended it for good. And this is what keeps us from being consumed by what has happened or is happening or will happen to us. By resentment or bitterness or frustration or anger. If we've put our trust in Christ, instead of focusing on the hurt, we need to focus on the one who is sovereign, who's in charge. For he has a plan and a purpose. Yes, others may have intended it for harm, but God. But God. Take those two words and write those over your life. Write it big. Every time resentment or anger rises, every time doubt or fear or anxiety rises, say, but God intended it for you. It may not be sin per se. It may be the harmful effects of living in a broken world. It may be sickness. It may be illness. It has brought great harm into your life. And you can say, this was intended for harm, but God intended it for good. But God intended it for good. But God, in the same moment, in the same incident, the same tools that were designed for my harm, God is designing to use for your blessing. Is that not astonishing? Is that not something? To priesthood, we, we, we can either fix our eyes on the sinful actions or the harmful actions or the harmful consequences and keep looking at those and that poison will corrode us or we can put those actions inside the shield of God's sovereignty and watch how they're used to bless us. And that brings us thirdly to saving purpose. Saving purpose. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The brothers were wicked. They were wicked. They were malicious in their actions towards Joseph. But if they hadn't done that, Joseph himself would have died in the famine, most likely. The brothers would have died in the famine. If Potiphar's wife hadn't lied, Joseph and his brothers would have died in the famine. If Potiphar's wife hadn't lied, Joseph wouldn't have been in prison. He wouldn't have come to the attention of the cupbearer. He wouldn't have come to the attention of Pharaoh. He would have just been lost. If the cupbearer hadn't forgot, then Joseph would have been out of prison and away off somewhere else. But he was there the moment when Pharaoh was a dream and famine's about to strike. God intended it for good and he had a purpose in it, the saving of many lives. And that statement fits over the whole of Joseph's life. It fits over the whole of Genesis. It fits over the whole of the Bible. A perfect world is made. Satan seeks to ruin it. He intended it for harm, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Because of Satan's actions, 
we get to see a richness to the love of God that we could never have seen otherwise. We get to see his saving love. The, the gap between us and him was, was the gap between a creature and a creator. And it would be amazing that the creator would love the creature. But whenever we realize that because of the fall, we are not just creatures and he the creator. We are rebels and he is the holy God. The gap is far wider than my arms will ever go. And yet his love is wide enough to span that gap. He had a purpose, even in Satan bringing sin into the world. And this statement can be written over the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jews meant it for harm. The Romans meant it for harm. Satan meant it for harm. The soldiers meant it for harm. Satan thought he had delivered the master stroke. But God intended it for good. I just, you know, Satan thinks that he has won, that he has defeated the Messiah. And to his utter horror, he finds that in bringing about the crucifixion, he has brought about the substitute who will pay for the sins of his people. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And because of the cross, because of the cross, Jesus' crucifixion is not just the proof that God uses what seems to be for harm, for good. That's the cause. That's the turning point. That's the pivot about which harm balances and becomes good for Christ's people. Another writer, Ray Ortland, says, Your past is unchangeable in fact. You can't change the facts. Your past is unchangeable in fact, but beautiful in potential, because there is a Redeemer. Because there is a Redeemer. You see, it's Jesus This is God's way of working. And for those who come to Jesus, they find that there's a pivot. There's a turning point for what is intended for harm. God intended for good. The saving of your life. Think of how God has woven the threads together to bring you to this point. The saving of your life. Your eternal salvation. What did it take? And God will continue to weave all the threads together using all the experiences, all that you're going through, all that seems to be for harm and for difficulty, to work good in your ongoing salvation and in the salvation of those around you. God uses evil for good, for his purposes. There's the illustration of the the Chinese uh, Christians going into prison. There's the, the illustration of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Through the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was a man uh, who hated the Japanese. And yet he came to faith. He hated the Japanese for what? And he signed up an American pilot to go to war to blow the Japanese to smithereens. And then he came to faith. And he went back to Japan as a missionary. And the guy that led the attack on Pearl Harbor, Mitsuo Fuchida, read this man's story and he became a pastor and an evangelist and shared the gospel and reading his story 
I found out that because of, of the other man's story, because of his story, hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries went to Japan. And God brought great good out of something astonishingly wicked. We see it with the murder of Jim Elliot, a missionary uh, to the Orca Indians in Ecuador in the 50s or the 60s, and how his death and the death of the others with him sparked a whole renewal of people's interest in worldwide mission work. Satan intended it for harm. God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Likewise, you'll find God using you to reach people, to tell them the message of salvation, who will listen to you because of where you have been. Your past is your greatest asset in God's hands. Your past, as Ray Orton puts it, is unchangeable in fact, but beautiful in potential because there is a Redeemer. Jesus doesn't simply redeem you and take you to heaven. He redeems all of your life and uses it. John Calvin says, Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect, for his people. Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his people. I just have this great picture made of, of Satan trying to, to pick poisonous uh, leaves and plants and to mix together a concoction of poison. But unfortunately for him, he can only pick it out of God's medicinal herbal garden. And no matter what poison he tries to make, it's only going to benefit the people of God. How utterly frustrating. Oh yes, there will be pain and there will be hardship. There will be harm in a sense that, that we will feel But God will intend it for good every single time. We will go through waterless pits and dungeons or courtrooms or deal with backstabbing, promise-breaking people, but they will be tools in God's hands to bring about something far, far greater. So will we look at the tools that cause the pain? Will we look at the purpose that the artist has in using them? If we keep looking at the pain, we'll be poisoned. If we look at the purpose and the God behind it, we will live with confidence in this world. How can we be sure? Because we are ahead of Joseph here. He only had pure faith to lean on. And a few promises. But we can go to the cross where God proves it to us in his own son, Before he asks us to trust him with our lives, he shows us, watch me. They intended it for harm. I intended it for your good. I've proved it to you in my own flesh and blood. Will you trust me with your flesh and blood? Will you trust me with your life and your pain and your circumstances? Right over your life, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. That which is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. Amen. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, what marvelous, marvelous truth 
is in that little phrase, but God. Oh Lord, whatever goes on one side of it, the things that we're worried about, the things that are causing us hurt or harm or grief or anxiety or trouble, let us bring them to this verse with the confidence that comes from the cross, from our relationship with Jesus. And let us know that you will use them for good in our lives. Help us to trust you and to live with confidence, knowing that what is intended for harm, you will always use for good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.